welcome everyone to our latest episode of Marketing Gets Real. We have a real treat in store for our listeners today. Unless you've been hiding under a rock the last few years, you're probably very familiar with our guest, Jeff Marcoux. He has been a prolific speaker on the marketing tech circuit and is known for building award-winning teams at the organizations he works for. Jeff has a wide range of experience from CMO lead at Microsoft to defining categories at T-Tech and Assertus. He's also a teacher with a passion for bringing the brass tacks of marketing to life in an approachable way. And first and foremost, he is a super good human. Jeff has some really cool things that he's been working on. So let's tune in and find out what he's up to. Hey, Jeff, it's so good to have you here. Welcome. (laughs) Thanks for having me. I'm excited to talk today. We're thrilled to have you here for sure. So so why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself, Jeff, and kind of what landed you here today in this particular moment with Dana and I to talk about all the shit that's happened in marketing and in Jeff Marcuse's life. <laughs> oh, as with all good stories, they start with a cocktail. Uh, uh, I was stocking Carrie is the honest answer uh, on this. I was, I was speaking at a conference called B2B Marketing Exchange or B2BMX for those familiar with it. And I had gotten there and it was night before and Carrie on the conference app was like, hey, anybody who's here early, come to this little fireside thing for a cocktail to hang out. And I'd been teaching and marketing for a little bit with UC Irvine and Carrie had this amazing program she was running at a Ben called Ben Polly. And I was like, that program's what I want to do. And I was like, I gotta talk to Carrie, but I'd never been able to connect with her. So I was like, I'm gonna stalk her, I'm gonna go show up. And that's how this friendship started. Gosh, how many years ago now? Five, years six? ago, years ago. And it was, we called it bubbles before bedtime. Remember? Yeah. <laughs> it was like, and then it became a thing at B2BMX. So, so February, we're going to be there. Um, All right. Uh, and I'll, I could I'll put never it on my go. Calendar. Because I was busy running the show. So I was always like, I can never go have bubbles. I'm just working too much. But that's how it all started. And out of that just came a long journey of of teaching together with Ben Polly and Greenfig as you started that. And then just kind of back and forth. I mean, the marketing world is a very tight-knit world of good people. And those good people tend to stick together. And I know you've had several of them on the show here already. And yeah, it's just kind of a fun world. I guess it's one of those life lessons of don't burn the bridges unless you're sure you're not going to need those. <laughs> so or true. don't want them, right? That's yes, yeah, that, exactly. <laughs> so, Jeff, there is a rumor you have a little new venture going on here. Tell us a little bit about what you're working on. I do. I do. A couple kind of fun things to do a little marketing consultant on the side. But the big thing that I am, I've kicked off, I've got a new company called Sphere Strategy and we are using all the fun stuff that that I've learned over years and years of marketing to do our own business. But what we're really doing is we're bringing advertising to a lot of the, the companies that have never been able to advertise before due to, we call them kind of the vice companies to some extent of restrictions, not laws, but restrictions that Google and Facebook have put on companies. So we're building partnerships with some, some pretty fun ones that are out there. Uh, everything from cannabis and CBD and supplements all the way to adult toys and all kinds of other fun stuff have a toilet company that's kind of interesting this is obviously not restricted but the individual he does a lot with just businesses and these people have just never had advanced kind of technology brought to them and their businesses and so it's really fun because we get to come and bring this new capability that a lot of people are are hungry for and it's using a lot of the cool technology that we've used on the b2b side around intent and intent data but it's really focused around consumer. And that consumer intent data has really been walled off by Google AdWords and Facebook. Well, now we can actually bring that to everybody in a really cost-effective way, hyper-intelligent targeting to companies that haven't really had those opportunities before. So that's kind of what we're working on right now. It's a lot of fun. I'm having a lot of really interesting meetings. And yeah, it's just been exciting. Have you read that book, Jeff, Everybody's Got a Poop? Oh, yeah. And and everybody's got to advertise or get the word out somehow. I was thinking of the toilet company, but yeah, you know, everybody's got to poop. So there you go. Shouldn't be restricted, as you say. Oh, but the cannabis side is really interesting, right? Because we're here in Seattle and Carrie and I have talked about this a couple times that 
there is a lot of opportunity there. I mean, these people have no way to market, to advertise. And so I think that's super exciting for them. And they have dollars to spend too, to reach people, which I think is even great, which a lot of times we can't say that with our companies. So Right. Well, it's, I mean, it's everything from building brand awareness instead of going to just a review site. Like how do you build brand preference among consumers who are actively in it? There's a whole cannabis tourism industry, right? Because we have to limit it obviously legally by state by state and the laws of the states is what how we're able to do that. But then how do I understand who's actively in market? Who's looking for that? Who's into edibles versus looking for accessories versus looking to utilize CBD for arthritis versus sleep versus anxiety? We can tailor all those kinds of messages and it's really just been fun to start to get into this, learn about all these industries that haven't really been able to get their word out there. So we have our own lines that we draw in terms of who will service versus not uh, as a company. But as of right now, we haven't found a cross on that, but we're excited about kind of what this opens up. You know, this is kind of a, a whole new market that's available. Really exciting. A lot to watch there, Jeff, for sure. You've done some amazing things in your career, but we want to kind of flip it over a little bit. And we want to hear kind of what are the things that you woke up the next day and you were like, oh, crap. (laughs) (laughs) I wish I could be like Groundhog Day and have a do over on that. So there were a couple of themes when we talked about kind of what some of your, you know, oh shit moments were. You know, one was around the full funnel and as marketers failing to to really look at the full funnel as they're both, you know, planning and executing from a strategic standpoint. So can you dive into that a little bit and talk about what your experience is there? Yeah. What's funny is that you talk to a lot of marketing leaders and even just a lot of marketers. And while people say that they do full funnel, things like that, if you really start to dive into what they're doing, the answer is they're not. You go, you know, how are you metric? What does that look like? One company that I was at, the marketing department before I I kind of took it over was really this fluff and stuff marketing shop. They were doing ads, they were spending a lot of money, doing events, and they were making PowerPoints. And what they would do was, and they were metric just on really nothing at the end of the day, was sales kind of happy with the PowerPoints they were delivering, but no accountability as they got into that. So say, I sent you both an email because you were on an opportunity, you know, with my Pardot instance, you didn't even open it, but we won that deal. The marketing team was like, woohoo, we're amazing. (laughs) We get credit for that. And, you know, as we started to dive in and, and, you know, I was an early believer in kind of a lot of the serious decisions frameworks and stuff like that, you know, it's gotten a little interesting as the as a lot of great consultants have left, but the early frameworks, right? <laughs> as you got in there, around Some good the, stuff. The demand unit and the concept of the buyer's journey, and if you really look at it, most marketers are stopping a lot of their metricing at how many leads or how many MQLs did I get. We are starting to see a little bit of this transformation into kind of full revenue marketers, people who actually have a sales number. But what I found was you really have to build out that desired journey as you're going through there. And when I had that initial kind of ah shit moment was we are operating on, we are a services business. We are operating on half a percent of revenue for our marketing budget. That's on par with an electric utility company, right? And so as I was taking over marketing and looking at this, I was like, okay, how do I get this done, right? Like I want the team to be accountable. I want the team to be inspired and to reach. And I said, okay, We had the ISRs come under us, and so we could control the handoff from lead to meeting, but then we also metric the team on the full funnel going to close one. And so you have to start to understand that funnel as you go through that, and your product marketers have to lean into that and look at, you know, what's your velocity, your conversion rates, all that kind of stuff as you're going through it there. And then you start to find some ugly things in that funnel. You start to find, for example, a seller when you hand it off to them they spend a whopping four minutes and two emails after an amazing live in-person demo, and then they write that off as a closed loss deal. And you're like, wait, wait, we had a great call. We did an in-person demo. This is all looking great. And you spent two emails and four minutes following up on that? And that was when we started to have that, kind of that epiphany. Uh, you don't want to have to have it, but we've got to make sure we're holding our sellers accountable as well as ourselves accountable to facilitating deals all the way through the life cycle. And so that started to get really fun because then you start to look and say, okay, hey, my demand unit of people to buy this product, these people, they come in at these points, here are their pain points, here's what they care about. 
And a good example of that was like we had CISOs, Chief Information Security Officers, who came in about halfway through our funnel. We had an award-winning CISO, and he was well-known in the industry. And so we started to put that content in front of those contacts well ahead of them ever being brought to the table. And that's when you start to see the velocity, your conversion rates, you're diving into it and measuring it, and you're not having those instances of sellers just completely dropping the ball, sandbagging things as you go through that. The other part that we did was we were looking at kind of that full funnel was we started to do some standard deviation analyses on like when did we win versus when did we lose? And we actually would see how long did deals sit in stages? What were those key items of when deals got lost? Like they didn't add products to it. They didn't have the full demand unit defined. And so we actually started to hold our sales team accountable because we had dug in and looked at all that insight to say, how does this work? Hey, you can't let this get past two weeks. That should sound like, oh my gosh, your sellers let things go past two weeks. Yeah, it was kind of the way that business was done. But until there was insight, you had no legs to stand on because you're just marketing, right? And so that was a lot of kind of where we, where I started to get really passionate about that full funnel was that accountability because I wanted to own a revenue number. I wanted to be able to say we were on the hook for this stuff. But to do that, I needed to be able to measure and hold other people accountable because otherwise I'm that's a hope and a prayer and that's not a good strategy. Oh my gosh. So love the passion here. And Dana and I, we kind of think of you, Jeff, as like the sales enablement guy, right? You know, like you actually taught a sales enablement class, a couple different classes at Greenfig that really... I think about what I learned from you as a marketer and how better to work at sales with your sales partners as well as as the sellers to ensure that they're giving you the right information, that you're giving them the right information, and that we're, you know we're all moving forward collectively. So I know that everybody has an opinion. As they say, everybody has a crazy uncle as well, right? So how did you manage getting the feedback from sales and using that to incorporate into, you know, your actionable plan of the vision that you had, everybody rowing in the same direction. <laughs> a mix of tools, arm twisting, and escalations. <laughs> this is kind of the, the right answer there. If anybody ever tells you that, that their Salesforce data is perfect, right, they're lying. But you've got what you've got, and you got to work with what you got, right? And so what we started out with was I kind of deployed... I like to align my product marketers with kind of a sales leader. So, right, that sales leader has a target. That product marketer is tightly aligned to ensure that success as they go through that. They're a mini CMO if they're on a product line or something like that. And so I deployed them to start looking at it and say, look at your funnel. Look at your wins. Look at your losses. You know, sellers are great about touting their wins. And kind of it's always a product or a price problem when it's, when it's a loss. And that's often not the case. And so start digging into that. Start looking at that. And now start looking stage to stage to stage and say, where is this breaking down? Now, what we found was where the data was good. We knew when a meeting happened, our data was good. We controlled all that up funnel. And we knew when there was a win, that data was good because sellers wanted to get paid. So kind of everything else in there is questionable, but let's work with what we've got. Let's kind of interpret it as we can. And so we started to kind of dive into that. We pulled our initial set of findings and we took those to our sales leaders and we said, hey, this is kind of what we're finding. Here's our timelines. Does that resonate? Do you agree? What's right? What's not? Here's our win rates overall. Does that seem off to you or is that accurate? And what was interesting is you often found a little bit of a rose-colored perspective being pushed up into upper management as opposed to when you got them like one-on-one, you're like, hey, here's what we're seeing. And you're not attacking them, but you're bringing them along. You're like, we want to figure out how to improve this because, look, if I can improve your win rate by 2% down here, that means the lead gen at the top of the funnel, I can reduce by a 1,000 accounts. That's material, right? And so they start to understand why you're digging in. You're not trying to expose them, but you are trying to help them when you say, look, your number is my number. That was a big piece, kind of getting people on board. Some sellers still wanted us out. Those were the causes for escalations. <laughs> but then it was really around partnering with them and saying, okay, well, how do we start to draw this out? And so we actually, we built what was called our morning coffee dashboard for our sellers. It said, here is all of your accounts. Here are your active accounts. Here's where they're showing intent. Here's where you have competitive threats. Here's what they're, where you might have good add-ons to your sales process. And so we actually started to map that all out, but we put that in the dashboards they were already using and we trained their management teams to use that in their weekly reviews. And we also kind of came up with the philosophy that made us not popular, which was, hey, instead of squawking, you need more top of funnel and you need more leads. Why don't you deal with the leads you have first and then come talk to us? 
because we had the data that said, look, you've let these 14 opportunities age out of where we basically know that they're going to be lost. That's not a marketing problem, right? We want to help you. We want to give you the air cover. We want to give you the ads. We want to give you the content, but you still got to work them. And we're here to partner with you. You haven't added the product set. So do you even know the client? Like, do you know what they, what you even want to sell them? We created the ability for the sales managers to have those candid conversations that they weren't having before. So that makes it a little unpopular with some of the bottom kind of the lower reps, the ones in the field, uh, kind of now being held accountable. But yeah, it was it was a mix of just kind of collaboration, but it all started with digging into the data, figuring out what it was, and coming with an idea to, to share. You hear it all the time, right? Salespeople are like, oh, the leads weren't great, or this isn't working. I mean, it's the sentence that all us marketers all cringe to hear, right? And But the reality becomes is, how do you know that, right? Because there wasn't the effort put in behind it to actually determine if indeed it isn't. So until we know that, you know, it's it's a team approach. But like you said earlier, it's not two minutes of time sending an email, and if you don't get a response, it's over, and that makes them unqualified, right? So And that was this whole... This is one of those ah shit moments that we had. So I had just taken over marketing. We were starting to make some bets. Like I was like, all right, I'm gonna invest in some technology because I don't have the budget to invest in volume of like ads and campaigns. So I was like, I'm half a percent of revenue. We need to work smarter, not harder, right? And just using those those fun tags as you're going through that and whatnot. But the interesting part as as we dug into that, when we got our early intent data, our sales team's like, yeah, here's our territories and here's like my 2,000 accounts we're going to go after. I was like, that's great. Let's take a look at that. And we pulled that out and our sales cycles were 12 to 18 months, right? So if it's not already in pipeline or already showing intent in the market, we're looking out a year as you go from that. And so we took that list and I ran it against our intent data and out of the thousands, 11, I still remember that number coming back. I see 11 are showing active intent in the market. And you're like, oh my gosh. You're like, we're all going to fail. And I've just signed yeah. up for a revenue number. Like, just crap. Up for a number. Why did I raise my hand for this? And I just got the tech like, installed and I'm like, yeah, we're going to be going after accounts in market and this and that. And I was like, so, okay. So I went and I pulled a separate list to active accounts showing intent. And I brought that list to our sales leaders and said, here's your list. Here's my list. My recommendation is we go after this because you're not going to hit your target. And that was the first year that T-Tech had hit its, target, its sales target in a very long time. And marketing crushed its, its target going through that. It was a lot of fun kind of digging into digging into that and looking at that. But that was kind of the start of one of those. And I, I did that again at, at another company where sales always has these opinions of these are the accounts, right? They're the they're the household names. They're the big companies, right? All that kind of stuff. It's like, how about we use a little bit of intelligence versus opinion to figure out who and where we should go after? And then based on your sales cycle, you can say, say, you know, you need a thousand deals to win or you got to win a thousand deals and you back out and you're like, okay, this is this many accounts. Well, some of that's already in your pipeline. Great. Deduct those out. Some of those are actively in market showing intent, but you're not going to capture all of those. Unless I, I have yet to meet a marketer who can successfully capture all intent in a single campaign. So what, what's reasonable for you to look at? And then how much do we actually need to create the why change and the why now in the market at large to feed the rest of it most marketers aren't going through that full funnel math and let alone having those candid conversations with their sellers at the start, because that's where you as a marketer then get set. Here's your budget. It's increased by X and you're like, versus if you can come back and say, here's my baseline for my MarTech, here's my events. And then here's what I need at a cost per meeting to hit the number that you need. And if you're not going to give me that, then I'm reducing my target. Right. Or what do I have to believe to hit that? Oh, well, sales says that they can get the ASP up by you know, $100,000, or we can increase our win rate by a percentage point and document the crap out of those. Holy cow. <laughs> so I had a seller, sorry, I'm going tangential. No, this I had is a great. seller who was like, um, he's like, yeah, our average sales price is, I think it was $2.4 million. And I was like, my data says otherwise. <laughs> <laughs> my data says we're less than a million on that one. And he's like, well, I just told the CFO that number. It's like, all right, so we're going to say that that's what you had, but I in the Excel a comment, so-and-so said this on this day, <laughs> replied to him in email. I was like, because, and then I planned for both, right? I was like, well, now to not call him out in front and build a massive enemy, 
I got to put this out there, but I know I need to plan against that. And that made a really interesting dynamic. Now, he was super grateful and thankful, and we worked really well together as we went through that. But like, you've got, as a marketer, you have to get ahead of a lot of these kind of planning processes, because otherwise you're just the recipient of it. And you have to get in their business, right? You know, I mean, it's as marketers, if we can dive in, I mean, the, the opportunity analysis, the win-loss analysis, what you collect from that is so informative. It's either on what not to do or what to potentially do, but it's a treasure trove. I had a win-loss analysis that said, your sellers are arrogant and that's why we didn't want to go with you. It's like, basically what you told us is, we're number one, according to everybody else, according to all the analysts, everything like that. You don't like uh, us. <laughs> and if, and basically, you know what? You're an idiot if you don't go with us. I'm like, that's not a great sales approach. That's not really no. value-led and adding value. Well, I mean, you're selling to people, not companies. Nobody wants to be told that, right? Yeah. That, that's the, like, if you buy IBM, you won't be fired mentality. Yes. It's like, if you buy us, you're safe. So don't, yeah, don't right. be stupid. Don't be stupid. But that's so much like we see that in content constantly, right? The me, 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 here's my product, here's my product. Even today still, I'm I'm constantly scratching my head going, why are we still producing content that talks about yourself and serving? I, I just, I'm amazed time after time because it's the same thing, right? It's that we're number one, so we can just talk about us and you'll buy from us then. So it's, this is a, this is a phrase I picked up recently, which is what's the most valuable resource in the world? Water. Fine. Time. Oh, time. Yeah. <laughs> you can tell I live in the water. desert. I'm like, water, well, water. Water technically recycles in some <laughs> way, shape, or form, mine. right? It's not right, so just going out into space per se. <laughs> may not recycle where we want it to or how we want it to, but time is the thing. As of today, we cannot manufacture more of. No. Right? True. And so, and so when it comes to content, this is, and one of the courses I teach is content marketing. I, you're literally asking someone to exchange something, right? Their email or contact information and to then spend the most valuable resource that they have as an individual. Because I'm taking time away from getting my job done so I can spend more time with my kids or this or that, right? If you've got to fundamentally shift your mindset when it comes to the content that, that companies are creating because of exactly what you just said there, they don't give a crap about you. They have a problem and they need your help to solve it. And I have chosen to give up some of my information. Now you're going to bug the crap out of me with a 17-step, 30-day sequence and phone calls and emails and all that stuff. Right. I know what I'm opening myself up to when I download something and that content better freaking deliver. Otherwise, I'm never coming back. And so that's, you know, for all the content marketers out there and the CMOs, you guys need to think about that. Is this something that I would want to spend my time on? You know, my most precious resource. Is it worth it? Yeah. Well, Jeff, you know, I'm passionate about this too. I mean, this is where I come from and it's always just mind blowing to on the other side too, as you're saying about time, it also takes an exorbitant amount of time to create good content. And so if you're not creating the right content, you've wasted all this time, money, resources. So it's on both sides. It's just a miss across the board and people just can't get out of their own way. They'll look at it and go, no, but I sell this product or I sell this software. And it's like, yeah, that's great. But what does it solve? What is, what's keeping up your buyer at night and how can you help them? And they just can't get past it. I just thought by now, this would have like gone away a little bit, but it hasn't. No, so. no, not at all. I think no. I, my favorite is we need a white paper and we need it like tomorrow. And you're like, well, that's not going to have <laughs> right value, right? Like valuable content saves me time, teaches me something new, right? And oh. versus you're just regurgitating a sales PowerPoint deck, like good content, it takes a good amount of time because you're doing a lot of research and distillation into something that now is a lot more cohesive for someone else to consume. That's adding value, right? Or teaching me something new or giving me something I can apply is, is delivering value. And yet so often we're just like, I need something tomorrow. We don't leave enough time to do it right. Carrie and I'd be rich if we had a dollar for every time someone said, can you get us a white paper by the end of next week? And then my favorite is what I tell Carrie is, I might be able to rush it, but you won't even be able to get it through the approvals you need to. to right. Even. Right. No, <laughs> spot on. I, I, totally. I so then that. we all rush and then it doesn't even go anywhere anyway. So we're all out. That goes to one of those other marketing moments where it's just like, it's not a popular thing for CEOs to hear, but we're not typically saving lives. Sometimes we are, right? And so what is the delay of a day or two to make sure it's better to not kill your team, which we are seeing massively right now is just burnout across the board. Like just kind of step back for a second. And also one of the, this is kind of a Jeffism is like, what's the problem we're trying to solve? 
not we need a piece of content. What are we trying to do with that piece of content? And what's the best way to go about doing that? I was sitting in a room where it's like, we got all these events, we got this and we got that, we can do this. And I was like, and they're like, that's kind of all I can come up to think about. I was like, well, how about we step back and look at the root? Like, what are you trying to do? Oh, we're trying to drive more demand. Okay. Of what kind? Well, this kind. Okay. Well, let's get smart about how we do that. Let's go look at who is showing intent in that. What do we know their big pain points are? Let's find the demand unit and then let's start to surround them with a simple strategy, right? Like less is more except for pizza and paychecks and most things, but marketers are the worst at complicating things. <laughs> they really are. Yeah. Oh, Whoa. absolutely. I love that. Less is more <laughs> except for pizza and paychecks. That's my new mantra. Had a little I bit too it. much pizza Ugh. here through, through this whole pandemic. I, I do so like pizza. Yeah. <laughs> There's this great little uh, pizza place in Redmond called Spark. We eat a lot of it these days. So oh, I've been to that one. <laughs> oh, you have to. Fire burning. Oh, it's really good. All right. So we could talk about content all day. But the, the other thing, Jeff, I think that was really interesting when we talked earlier is, and nobody else has brought it up yet. So I thought it was a fascinating kind of oh shit moment. But talking about how, the role our customers play in our success. And when we talked, I don't think I've ever, when I've taken a job, I don't think I've ever done that side of my research. Are the customers happy with what we're doing? So I'd love to hear a little bit more about that. That has become one of my like must interview questions. But the hard part is actually getting the honest answer. Because right, you can be pointed to Gartner and Forrester reviews or GPI or G2. But remember, those are all highly curated, right? Like their teams focused on making sure those specific accounts are happy and they're putting that five stars in there. You know, so sometimes it can be hard to really get the honest answer as you're going through that. And we all know, number one, right, for in software in particular, right, recurring revenue is critical. Reducing churn is critical. Cross-sell, upsell, keeping your competition out of there. It's much easier to sell and expand a current customer than it is to get a new one. Yet marketing very often, like customer marketing is almost this afterthought. It's like, go get us some case studies and stuff like that. Well, if your customers aren't happy, everything becomes really, really hard, right? Like I can't get sales references. I can't get ROI statistics to put in my top of funnel on what the software will do for you. Oh, you'll get a 2X ROI or a reduction in this or a savings of that or, right? If I don't have happy customers with actual results, I don't have case studies. I don't have numbers to put that are actually proof point. I don't have sales references. I don't have analyst relations references. I now can't connect dots as we're going through that. And everyone's world starts to get so much harder when you just don't have happy customers. One company I was at was they had over 30% of their customers in red and then another massive chunk in yellow trending red. And what was interesting was this wasn't even necessarily on the C-suite's radar because a lot of rose-colored glasses, people wanted to try to make the scene like everything was amazing, everything was great. But when you dug in, you're like, why are we having this trouble? And we started to realize we're going back to the same like 10 customers and they're getting really annoyed of us, like asking for quotes for press releases and getting, you know, putting their logos and stuff and you know, having them talk on panels. And they start feeling taken advantage of. Well, that's not what you want. And we started to dig into it and it was like, oh, this isn't good, right? Like we worked really hard to fill the top of funnel and to get these leads and to get these sales, but you've got to have a great product that delivers on the promises. It's okay if it breaks on occasion and things like that, but that's where in-product telemetry and having marketing actually care and look at that is critical. It's like actually having a roadmap that you believe in. It's a, there's a great book by Dan Heath I reference a lot called Upstream. And the story is paid off quickly in this little story. It's just you know, two friends walking along the river, the Deschutes, and they see a kid going by. And then another one, they realize these kids need help. And there's a whole stream coming. And they get in and they start pulling them out. After a while, they're exhausted. One gets out, starts walking up the river. And friend's like, are you giving up? Like, no, I'm going to go stop the person who's throwing the kids in. You know, some <laughs> of that's like, that's sales and, so and, and product at times, right? You're, you're, you're giving you're giving more bodies with sales, giving more customers. And if the product keeps like accelerating the river and the water coming down, like those two things have to kind of get fixed because that all really starts to connect. It impacts your, right? All that recurring revenue that you need to be successful, to have a great exit, a great roadmap, delivering on it, happy customers. And so that's kind of where you have to start looking at that customer marketing element and does the product 
pay off what the promises are. I want to work for a company that has raving fans. My world as a marketer is so much easier when people love the product, right? And we see this with some of the flywheels and the product-led growth, right? Hot topic of, of the word. But the product's still got to do the job. Otherwise, you won't have product-led growth. You'll have product-led churn, right, as you go through that. A great company to me is like Mural, right? And, and I'm a raving fan of Mural. I use it with my teams all the time. I use it with, with clients and prospects and all that kind of stuff. And the product works. I have frustrations now and then, sure. But overall, it delivers on it and I enjoy it versus other stuff is just can be really, really difficult. I love it. That's good stuff. <laughs> I love that story. That's a great one. <laughs> I'm still watching the kids swimming down the river, but I think it's interesting because if you're talking about measuring, obviously CAC is the customer acquisition cost is something that's critical, but also you're betting your career on a revenue number that probably includes some modeling around customer lifetime value, right? And Or retention so I don't, the job at the top isn't as high, right? Like exactly. all that stuff. Exactly. Yeah. And the downstream impact of that, and then just getting to really understand the why, right? I think oftentimes as marketers, we're so busy that we're just not stopping and asking the question, well, why? To your point, Jeff, what are we trying to accomplish here? What is our goal? Why? And yeah, you know, customer marketing, I mean, when you talk about the full funnel, right, you've got to, you know, I know Tracy Eiler often talks about the infinity loop, right? And so once the handoff from sales to customer success, marketing still needs to be involved in that because we're always selling, especially in the SaaS world, right? Well, and it's so low-hanging fruit. It's the easiest way to, I mean, the renewals are the easy way to get that to that revenue. So tough question, Jeff. Would you have taken the job had you known the customers that it was in that situation? Without naming the company, that the short answer is probably not had I known the product was where it was and, and the customers were where they were because that was the bane of my existence. Honestly, it made everything so much harder proving that the product could do what we were even remotely like it was a lot of marketing fluff and it's like i gotta try to pay this thing off and then i need proof points because that's what everybody's going to ask for well how much is it going to do this or how you know what can i expect when i do this type of thing and it's really just critical to, to dive into those things like for me talking to the head of engineering trying to talk to an actual customer like those are some of the best things that you can try to do very often they'll keep them kind of close to the chest but you need to find somebody who's willing to be honest and candid with you because you, what you'll also find is that even CEOs often don't have the full picture until like the alarm bells are going off and the alarm bells should have gone off at like, like 10, 12% red state, not 30 plus percent. Yeah, that's high, right? That's that's a definitely that's massively flag. high, right? And as you yeah. look at like startups and things like that, or even public traded companies, right? That's all risk that's in that. And so how do you de-risk all of that is by making happy customers. Right. We had a client that actually was focused on understanding they had a high amount of churn. And what they realized is, is companies maybe smaller or earlier in their maturity were not the right fit for them, right? Because they were the ones that were churning. And so that analysis led them to kind of pivot from a marketing perspective. What's the strategy and who do we want to go after to really focus on that longer customer relationship? Well, that's one of the projects I'm working on right now is these smaller customers and how do you get them to get value out of the software that they're buying? And how do you come up with use cases that are actually applicable, right, to them so that they can get success out of it versus get frustration? And that's kind of, I think, a lot of the, the different elements as you dig in is a lot of software has value across the spectrum. You just got to figure out where are the nuggets and how do you make it as easy to use as possible? Not everything's going to be easy, but then if it's not, have a plan for how you're going to make that customer happy from start to finish. So let's talk about your last failure. <laughs> Uh-oh. All right. So you were at a, a large organization. <laughs> I think we've heard this name before, actually, where there were maybe some miscalculations on your part related to opinions and maybe positions within the organization that that caused you a little bit of heartburn. Um, do you want to elaborate on that? Is there anything our listeners can learn from your your fuck up there, Jeff? <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, yeah. It doesn't matter where you are in your career. There will always be politics 
And it is important to understand the dynamics of those politics. I was early in my career at a, at a small startup uh, that makes products like Excel, uh, you know, some of those <laughs> things that are out there. And I was focused on growing Microsoft's relationship with, with CMOs and agencies. Really fun job, right? I'm like, I got the entire Microsoft portfolio. I got all the partner portfolios. We're talking to the agencies, like all kinds of fun stuff that's tied into this. And I get to craft the story and the team's message around that and the go-to-market strategy and all those kinds of things. And very quickly, you talk to any marketers, you're like, oh, you're going to CMO.com. You're not coming here for anything. If anything, you're a detractor on anything my sales team is trying to sell you, right? You're that squeaky wheel that wants to use something else besides Microsoft product. So I was like, okay, so we have a problem that the audience is never going to see this message, right? Or we're going to have to force feed it to them, which is not the right way to do that. And so kind of going to our earlier conversation on content, I said, all right, well, how do we create some great content that is going to deliver value to these people to start building rapport with them, to start bringing them in? And we tailored it to our different things that we had solutions to, like our advertising with Bing and some of our creative stuff and our analytics stuff that was really cool with Azure and all the things that we were doing. And went and built what, what I call a big rock piece of content, stealing from Jason Miller, his whole thing there. And we built this thing and, and I, I grabbed it for today in our conversation, you know, Project Evolution there. And it was this massive e-magazine that we had, it was gonna run for four months. We had budget to do three of them. We had well-designed, well-laid out, broken into lots of pieces and infographics and videos. And we had our social handles. And we had our own independent website as we were going through that and we were gonna launch all that. And so in good, Matt, big corporate fashion, early in your career, you self-promote when you do something big. So we get this thing rolled out. We're really excited about it. We're getting great feedback. We talked to the analyst. We talked to Serious Decision. I'm, I'm the one who brought Serious Decision into Microsoft. And he was like, this is amazing. Go do it. And so we're pushing it. No secrets that we were doing this work at all. And then one team heard that we were doing this thing. And they were the enterprise team that in there, I'm not going to get specifics on that uh, besides they're in the enterprise group. And basically they were got, they got really pissed off that we pushed this whole thing out. And it was, it was like, why'd you do what? You know, you're going to lead traffic away from this site to that site. And this and that. I was like, this audience is not coming to this site. Like what's our webpage traffic? Like zero. Like what's the strategy across all of corporate to drive to this? Like your primary buyers are not this audience and they don't care. They don't give a crap about what we have to say. It's like, we're leading them to water in as many ways as possible as we go through this. So back and forth with this team. And then I get a, I get a phone call from my boss's boss's boss. And it's a Friday afternoon and I can still remember and I'm sitting there and, and I, it's a Jeff, this is what people lose their jobs for at Microsoft. <laughs> wah, wah. And I was like, well, <laughs> shit. <laughs> so we dumped the website, took everything offline, all stop. It's still one of the, like the best pieces of content I've ever produced in my career, tightly aligned to full go-to-market, tightly aligned to, to draw people in at different depths of content. Like, I still use the strategy today. I call it wave campaigns as a part of that where you've got these sequences and how they go together I because it's the right strategy. But it was an instance of not under, fully understanding and comprehending egos and kind of different people in and around that and kind of politics in those situations. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see in your new endeavor, because I'm not good at politics, Jeff. I struggle with it. I mean, Dana is much better at it than I am, better at reading reading situations and such. I'm a little bit of a bull in a china shop. But it'll be interesting to see, like being not in the middle of it, being on the outside of it, you know, kind of what how that will change how you navigate politics. But you're absolutely right. It's one of the things I tell kind of my mentees and students. I say, when somebody's asking for something, try to understand or think through the why. Why is this person pushing on? Why is this product person having to insist that these things were launched by these dates? And you're feeling all the pain from that because it's not real, right? Well, it's because they're that's how they're comp, right? It's that's how they're committed. It's and ideally, once you understand that, you can then go have a candid conversation and figure out how to make it work for the both of you. Right. But understanding, getting to the root cause of why someone is behaving the way they are, or at least making some educated guesses, 
that people may never say out loud, but at least if you go at it with that perspective, I've had people who they, they actively attack you essentially to try to deflect eyeballs from them because they don't know what they're doing, right? They're in a senior role and they've kind of gotten there by playing politics the whole time. And all they're doing is referencing back to, to their notes because they don't know their field. They don't know their area. They don't know what their teams are doing. And they're deflecting and attacking other people and that's kind of their MO. And so when you know that, you can prepare for it. You can try to educate yourself. You can educate your team, right? Ideally, you don't want to, you want to shield your teams from those politics and stuff. But if they're the ones feeling some of that brunt of those attacks, like you still got to think that way. You got to be proactive about that. For sure. So I know we're getting to our time. So wrapping things up, you talked to us a little bit about Sphere Ready and your new endeavor. Is there anything really specific for the company that you're working on right now? A a project, a certain client that you're just really excited about? Oh man, probably two kind of come to mind. The first is really helping just a couple companies kind of rethink their total go-to-market. Who are they targeting and why? And what are those? I mean, at the end of the day, we're all humans and we're all impacted by psychology. And if you're a marketer and you haven't gone and studied neuroscience and psychology, highly recommend that you do because that's how we make decisions. And so simple things like reducing choice volume, right? So you don't overwhelm them or staying top of mind and leveraging things like the forgetting curve and things like that of, of just, there's just basic strategies. And a lot, again, a lot of companies, especially these ones that aren't as sophisticated are seeing a lot on that one. Probably one that's most interesting is, is some of the cannabis stuff that, that we're working on that really kind of, how do you craft a journey from, from brand exposure and preference all the way through to purchase? Because we can't impact all of it, but we can impact different elements to try to drive additive footfall, retarget people from sites, that kind of stuff. I'm just honestly really excited about the companies that are looking for to get either they can't use Google and Facebook or they're looking to get outside and differentiate a little bit beyond those ones. That's the stuff that I'm really excited. I mean, we have <laughs> we are gathering behavioral intent data on devices, including iPhones and Safari devices on 91 percent of all devices in the US every single month. Billions of, of data and our tech is using natural language processing to understand the content that people are reading about. This is what we use in B2B tech all the time. And it hasn't really been there for B2C companies. And so that's the part that I'm really excited about is just bringing this to market in a new fun way. So there are B2B applications of it, sure, but we're really focusing a lot on the B2C side of it. And so using all my my years of marketing and B2B experience yeah. to, to grow this company. Love well, it. Carrie and I want to create content for those cannabis companies. Yeah. So, so we'll support you I've had you a lot there. of volunteers for testers too. <laughs> So, Jeff, you're going to go from the sales enablement guy to the weed guy. Is that okay? <laughs> uh, we're going to be the everything guy. It's kind of okay. all the vices kind of fall into this. So it's a where, is, where are we drawing the line on it a little bit? I love bit? it. I love it. Well, yeah. Come uh, to Vegas. The line is very far away. That's, yeah, that. yeah. No boundaries there. It's fun. I, I mean, we're getting to help educate people. Again, this is kind of it's where it's our boundaries, right? Because there's a lot of bad crap out there. There's a lot of false advertising, that kind of stuff that's out there, but things that we can vet that we believe in, supplements that can help people. You know, I'm a CBD user and use it for my knees and stuff like that. And so those products, I love helping them, right? Or there might be medical procedures or things like that, that people haven't been able to really learn about or whatnot. And as long as we believe in it, right, we're not going to go do anything shady, but it's letting us kind of bring some of these things that just haven't had access to the market and helping people. Yeah. Yeah. Hey, so we got time for one more quick question before we wrap up. This is one of Dana and my favorites because it's very, it's very telling. Yeah. <laughs> so what advice would you give to 20-year-old Jeff? Knowing what you know now, what advice would you give to yourself just starting in your career? I might have two answers to this one. Okay. If that's okay. Yeah. I think the first is take the time to understand the dynamics of kind of the organization when you get in. When you get in there, you're like, I want to make a difference. I'm going to swing for the fences, this and that. And that can get you into trouble a lot of different ways. It can get you into trouble when you're doing things like this and you get told to turn it off after you've put in months of effort uh, and it's up for a whopping 72 hours. 
But it can also get you oh. in trouble in terms of, so you're not understanding the politics and kind of the plays and getting kind of that behind the scenes feedback of kind of how stuff works, understanding the power center, but also on your home life. And I think we're seeing a lot of this right now is you're setting unrealistic expectations that you're going to be able to maintain over time. And then that becomes your reality. And that's how you get burnt out. And is one of the things I tell you know, my mentees and stuff, I'm like, you know, we work so that we can live. We don't live so that we can work. And so all of that comes in with coming in, taking the time to understand, setting realistic expectations. What are you actually going to be able to maintain? It's great to want to get those quick wins. But if that becomes your, you know, if you're that person who's always on 24-7, some companies won't hire you if you're not that person. And you know what? That's probably not a company you want to work for unless you choose to make that decision. But you've got to set those expectations like I know that there's some some agencies and stuff doing things like you know, Sunday nights are a great night to send emails. And they're like, we're not going to send them anymore because that's a behavior we don't want to reinforce. And I, as a manager, as a marketing leader, that too is something you need to reflect on. Like I'll tell my teams, I'm like, look, I'm like, if it's an email, it's probably not that important, honestly. If it's a Slack or a Teams message, you can respond to it when you need to or when you want to. I was like, which I'm putting my kids down and I'll you know, train a thought. I'll have a thought. I want to capture it or share it. Like I'll hit you up at like 10 p.m. And I, I do not expect an answer at all. You're just getting my train of thought. I'm like, if I text you, then it's urgent. And I'm going to try that better be the exception and not the rule. And just setting those those kind of boundaries with your teams as a marketing leader is really critical because then they know that they don't have to be on and reminding them or being like, hey, I've noticed you've been working really, really hard. I'm really proud of what you've done. Take Friday off, like off the books, take it off. You're having a strategic meeting with me and just go like make yourself whole, manage your energy. Don't manage your time, manage your energy. Cause like there are times when you got to surge and there are times when you'll kind of, it should be the normal cadence and rhythm, but surge should not be the always. And even when you do surge to manage that energy, you do need that recoup time. So that's one <laughs> I would tell myself. The other is more and more over my career, it's become really obvious that it's important to be passionate about what you're selling and you got to care about it. Not B2B software can't always be amazing, but the vision of what you're creating or what the potential is, is great. And the product has to deliver against that over time where you kind of do have to at least see a roadmap to get there, right? To get to that reality. But you're spending a lot of your time and effort pushing stuff and you're making content about it. And it's a lot easier to make content about something you're excited about. It's a lot easier to tell a story and a value prop about something you care about, right? And so identify what those things are. And kind of those then become almost your account-based marketing list for companies you want to work at, right? Like you might have multiple categories, you might have things that you like to do, or you may really just love a particular job type. I know people who, you know, they're bread and butter, they don't care what the company is, but they love sales enablement, but that's their jam. So kind of figuring those things out and learning about that is, is critical because if you get in and you just realize that you're just going to kind of be running flat, that's how you get to burnout fast. Yeah. So kind of find companies that you actually, you're passionate about what they do, what, what you're selling. You know, if you're in, in marketing, what are the techs that you love using? Who are the agencies you enjoy working with? You know, those kinds of things are great indicators as you go through that. Is there a category that you just find yourself researching a lot on your own? That's probably a good indicator. Great. Those, those are my two. Nice. I love yeah. them. <laughs> great advice. You'll have to listen to the episode where Dana and I talk about our uh, <laughs> our advice to our 20-year-old selves. I, I do need to listen to that one. I'm excited about it. <laughs> I have a whole list of, it's funny, I, I, for our interns, I did this whole thing on Jeff Careerisms of just all these things I've gone through. And I'm like, all right, nobody's recording this. HR is not allowed on this call because they're not going to like half of what I have to say. <laughs> and that's, uh, I'll get, can I give you one third one? Do we have enough time yes. for one last yes. one? Yeah, yeah. All right. So this is an HR one. HR is not there for you. It is there for the company. It's really hard. My dad's an HR manager, like a director for a company. Like that's, that's a really hard one to swallow at times, especially when you hear, you know, these DEI workshops and all these other things that companies are doing. The candid answer on most of that is that's a CYA for those businesses that if they ever get in trouble, they can say, look at what we did. I was at a company where the, like, the HR's job is to protect the company from lawsuits and any form of liability. It's not to help you get that promotion, right? If you bring up a thing about a gender pay gap, which I had at one of the companies, I was like, hey, I got these two designers, one's a guy, one's a gal, same country. I was like, she's making 10 grand less than him. If he left, I wouldn't care. She's much better than him. 
I want to get her that raise so that we don't lose her and because the skills are just different. And HR had made us go through this whole process and things like that and it ultimately got to nine. And I was like, this is just even a talent thing. But their job is got to go through the cycle and this and that. And that was one of the reasons I left one of the companies that I did was just like those things just keep coming up. But when you realize that for HR, like you're very mindful of the conversations that you're having with them. We're seeing it right now. Oh, you didn't appreciate that 4% raise. Well, that's not even on track with inflation. And I had a company over here offering the same job for 30% more salary. You know? Which is why people are bailing, right? So much. It's like, why do I need to sit here working 60 hours a week for less money and not even enjoying what I'm doing, right? Yeah. So. So it's, you know, HR is there for the company. It's not there for you. And that then kind of, unfortunately, you do put up some walls, but it's like I had a company that one of the feedbacks was, you know, people are, are feeling really burnt out with their work-life balance. Well, their answer was to get a new program to help you figure out that. I was like, oh, so you're asking us to take time, to spend time for them to tell me to take time. They already know I need to take, but I don't have time to take, but you've paid for a program with cash so you can say you did something. And I was like... Like, let's just use the logic here as you go through it. And you start to play yeah. those things out. And you're just like, yeah, it's good to know. And, you know, a good man, good manager will, there's a big difference between a manager and a mentor, too. And I, I, I do this. I had a gal leave my team. She's amazing. And she left and I couldn't blame her. And she told me, I was like, all right, manager hat. Anything I can do to save you? No. Okay, cool. Like, mentor hat. Yeah, I think you're making the right decision. Here's kind of this. Let's talk about anything that we need to do. Like, and you almost need to change those hats off because for the business, you have to wear one as a manager. But your team, for them to trust you, you've also got to be that mentor. Otherwise, you're just that you're just you're driving them and you're driving them and they don't understand where you're coming from and that kind of stuff. And so that's been just another one for me as a manager and an executive that I've, I've had to pick up. Definitely something I right, think Carrie and I abounds too. So yeah, it's great. <laughs> we definitely needed a uh, drink for that one, Jeff. So we'll have to uh, we'll have to pick that up when we see you again. Sounds good. <laughs> great. Well, thank you so much, Jeff. This has been fantastic. Uh, Thanks for so having much me. This fun. has been really fun. Really appreciate it, and best of luck in the the new company. We're excited to keep hearing more about it. So yeah, if people know companies or want to learn more about it, they can find us at spherestrategy.com, and we're happy to chat with anybody on this stuff. It's a it's a fun new world, and uh, we're hoping to to be the leader in it as we get going and bring a solution that people don't have. Love it, and Dana and I can vouch for Jeff. Yes, <laughs> awesome. All right, thanks, guys. And that's as real as it's getting with this episode. Thanks for joining hosts Dana Harder and Carrie Baldwin with Unreal Digital Group. In this podcast, Marketing Gets Real, where we get rid of the filters and chat with B2B marketers about real-life stories of successes, failures, and everyday adventures. If you're loving these oh shit, tell it how it is type of conversations, subscribe, rate, and review wherever you get your podcasts. Until next time.